The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, episode 871 for Monday, May 17th, 2021. <laughs> Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where you send in your questions, your tips, your cool stuff found. We take all that stuff, we mash it all together into something loosely resembling an agenda, and then we loosely go through that thing resembling an agenda to answer all your questions. And the goal being, normally the goal is that we learn five new things, but we had a request in the live stream chat room at live.macgeekab.com today, six new things. We're, de- we're going to do it. I, can't, I, I guarantee you we can do it today. This isn't going to be a permanent change. No huge pressure, but today it's going to be six new things. Sponsors for this episode include checkout.com slash MGG, where you can check out their free white paper. Upstart.com slash MGG, where you can uh, do their little five minute uh, thing and and get all the details that you need. And then a new one, magicspoon.com slash MGG, where code MGG saves you five bucks off your purchase of delicious yet healthy cereal. We'll talk more about the details of these, especially that last one. Uh, fascinated me this week. Um, it was interesting to learn. For now, here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in Fairfield, Connecticut, this is John F. Braun. How are we, John F. Braun? Happy, late, happy delayed tax day, Dave. It's true. Happy delayed tax day. That's right. That's right. If you're listening to this either in the pre-show or pre-release stream or on the day it is released, then, uh, then you... Uh, it, you still have time to file an extension without penalties. So that's uh, or file your taxes if if you are ready to do so. So well, I a federal return in the mail yesterday. Aha! Yeah, yeah. No, I'm always on the uh, I, always on the the extension program. So just make sure you get your free extension and you're good to go. Um, speaking of listening to the show on the day that it is released, uh, we Apple Podcast changed some things and. Apple's podcast app no longer pulls down the show directly from us. It waits until Apple's servers have gone and parsed our feed. And then that's what's reflected in the app. And this is because of the whole subscription thing. They need to be able to balance everything and, and know which version you're supposed to get and all of that stuff. Um, and this is not, we haven't done anything with subscriptions yet. We probably will implement something as we've discussed, but this is for everyone on Apple podcasts. So, It can take hours. Uh, You know, we generally release the show at 7.30 a.m. Eastern on Mondays. And we've heard from some folks that it might not appear until, say, 7.30 p.m. Eastern on Mondays in Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe in other podcast apps uh, that will get you the show much, much faster than you can currently get it through Apple if you are someone who is used to listening on Monday mornings. Uh, So... There's nothing we can do about this at the moment other than guide you. So we guide you. And now onward we go to some quick tips, John. Yes. So uh, Eduardo is going to help guide us to another quick tip, which is uh, the tip. So he says the tip listener Dan gave on episode 870 about touching 
mail with two fingers uh, on iOS to enter edit mode also works on messages. And it sure does. And there's also an edit button to messages as well. So uh-huh. when clean up your messages, this will let you do it quicker. Interesting. I did not know that. I love the quick tips. That's good. Cool. Excellent. All right. I got one that I accidentally found, Dave. Go. Um, yeah, I was fiddling with some. Um, so on iPhones without a home button. Um, yeah, I was trying to do something with uh, S lady. Yes. I understand there are more voices. So maybe it's not. Maybe it could be a guy. Well, I think it always could be a guy, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, all right. So to do that on a home button list phone, you hold down the power button, which is the button on the right. Um, and then I'm like, you know, I I want to know what else happens. There's another one you probably know about. But if you click twice on the power button, that will bring up um, Apple Pay. Right. OK. Yes, I've done this. Right. I was like, you know what? I'm going to go for broke here and I'm going to click the power button three times and something happened. <laughs> <laughs> and it brought up this app um, with a, a with a picture of uh, what was on the front camera or the back camera. Um, and I'm like, what is this app? Um, there's an app that I did not know about called Magnifier. Oh, right. Which lets you zoom in on stuff. So it's like a virtual uh, magnifying glass. Right. Which is kind of neat. Um then I'm like, you know, I wonder if there's a place where you can set or how do you set this up? Like, can you do anything else? And as it turns out, Dave, you can. Uh, and I found an article from Apple called Use Accessibility Shortcuts on iPhone. And what you do basically is you go to Settings, Accessibility, Accessibility Shortcut, and then it has a list of things that you can do. And by default, I guess it's magnifier. But there are several other things. Um I don't think you can choose just anything. Right. It didn't seem that way, but, um, huh. Okay. So I had no idea. I mean, this is, this is the iteration of Apple's triple click the home button to do exactly the same thing, right? It brings you to that accessibility shortcut, whatever it is you set it to in exactly the same way that, that you just described. But of course on non home button devices that doesn't exist. I have, the only time I've used the accessibility shortcut was um, in the pre smart invert days. Um, I would, I would use it to turn, to invert my screen manually so that I could like have black backgrounds for messages and dark mode, the pre dark mode days, I should say, because it was using smart invert. That's what I had the thing set to. Now, I still do that, but the only place I do that is on stage when I'm using my iPad to read like either sheet music or notes. And I don't want the glow of the iPad to light my face. I usually put my iPad if I'm at my drum set. It's sort of down left of me hanging off my hi-hat if anybody thinks looks at it, think about a drum set. So I have it clamped onto my hi-hat and uh, and and there's this glow that can come up from it. And you know, that glow doesn't necessarily look so good on stage. So I would, I use smart invert on those, but all the iPads that I use live are old um, home button iPads. I generally use older iPad minis on stage because that's the right size. And I don't, you know, it's fine. They, they run four score, which is the app that I use. And, 
and that, you know, that's all I need. And so I still use that, but I had no idea that the power button on touch ID devices also did the same thing. That's good to know. This is what I love about quick tips. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Um, while I'm at it, I will, um, I, I will share the, the clamp that I use to clamp an iPad. I, I mean, I clamp it to my hi-hat stand, but you could use it to clamp it to anything is uh, the tablet clamp from Stage Ninja. These Scorpion clamps are amazing. They like you, you position them and they stay exactly where you put them. They, they have, you know, magic hinges in their arms or whatever. I don't know, whatever it is. Uh, but uh, we'll put a link in the show notes. If you're looking for anything uh, to clamp, uh, you know, an iPad or an iPhone, they have them in different sizes and shapes and, you know, very, very useful stuff. Obviously they're geared towards musicians, but if you need to clamp your device somewhere, doesn't really matter what the purpose is. That's the thing I would recommend. So we will put a link to that in the show notes too. Cool. Anything else on that, John? Nope. All right. Um, well, I have a, a quick tip for us here, John. I recently, because of all the issues we were having actually with, with the streaming software we were previously using called Mimo Live, I found that it was helpful to make sure my Mac restarted on a weekly basis. I generally, and longtime listeners will know this, I generally recommend restarting before your Mac gets to double digit uh, uptime. Right. So uh, double digits in, in terms of days, I'm not talking hours. These aren't windows machines here. Um, but in, in terms of days, the, if my Mac is acting flaky and I look at how long it's been up, it's almost always been up for like 10 days or more. And so I thought, well, why am I waiting until I notice it's flaky and then rebooting? Why not just schedule the reboot? And so you can do this. You go into system preferences, energy saver. I know it seems like a little weird place to do it. But uh, in the lower right corner is schedule and you can schedule a restart. You can also schedule wake ups and uh, startups if you want. I, I have some of my Macs set to start up or wake every day at like 7 a.m. And that's just in case I'm traveling and it gets turned off. There's some of my Macs I like to be have the option of remoting back into. And so that makes sure that it's awake um, at least within 24 hours. But I now have them set to restart. I've set them for 7.15 a.m. on either Saturday or Sunday morning when I know I'm not going to be here. Uh, chances are I'm not going to be here. And that way I'm certain my Macs restart once a week. I don't do it to my laptops. This is desktop Macs only that I do this for. Obviously, laptops, that'd be a little weird, I think. I don't know. Like, yeah. I don't know. Would that work on a laptop if it's asleep? Would it still take a triggered restart in like self automated clamshell mode maybe oh well yeah my mini here i scheduled through an energy saver you can schedule a restart and i thought i fixed this but apparently i didn't because i scheduled one for the weekend and when i came to the machine it was off <clears throat> fun well i don't know if there's like an app to do this outside of how apple's trying to do it it, so it, it's it's doing something. It's just not coming back up. Is that right, John? Yes. Interesting. Yeah. I, and I, you had this once before and you said you did an SMC reset to, to try and fix it. Actually, a PRAM reset seemed to fix it because I think there are some energy yeah. related or sleep related things uh, stored in there as well. But um, 
eh, I'll give it another whirl. Or I don't know if somebody has a restart app. <laughs> well, my guess is it would do the same thing, right? I mean, yeah. it's going to issue a, you know, shutdown dash R that would actually, that would be the thing to try right from the command line. Do um, don't do this right now. Please uh, listeners, you could do this now if, but know that it's going to restart your computer, but you would do sudo S U D O. Um, and I'll put this in the show notes. You don't have to remember shut down dash R lowercase R space now. So it's sudo space, shut down space, dash R space. Now that will it. And I know you're typing shutdown, but the dash R says, and then restart. Mm. Um, so I, I'd be curious what happens to your Mac. If you issue that command, because that might tell you at least that might be a way to test for this. If it if it acts the same way as the system shutdown utility does, if it doesn't, well, then, yeah, you just figured out what to do to uh, I mean, it's this. The problem is this isn't the nicest shutdown. This isn't like log out and and do that. It is it will shut down the system properly, but it's going to just force quit your apps is what it's going to do. So um it's, it's, you know, it's not terrible, but I would say quit all your apps and then just issue this from terminal and, and away it'll go. But, um, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So I'd be curious what it does. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's weird that it won't come back up. Yeah. That sounds like it almost sounds like a, like, like you said, like a PRAM problem. Like it's, it's wherever it's storing, the flag to say restart afterwards it's getting lost after the shutdown happens right and so maybe maybe you you've maybe you've got something going on that corrupts your pram the other thing to do is clear your pram see if this works and then see when it stops working and try and like keep a mental log or a written log of you know things that you might be doing with your mac i don't know it's Weird things to troubleshoot, but we like that. That's what we do here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, moving on. Moving on to Cove. Um, I keep hearing you guys and other Mac Observer podcasters professing the benefits of a dedicated password manager. I just downloaded one password and it was more confusing than I expected. To be honest, I've already deleted it as unusually confusing, unusably confusing. Hmm. Why is why is it that the Apple password manager is not adequate? My family and I have used it for years without issue. Convince me why I should try a non-Apple password manager again. So far, I have not been caught. Um, honestly, um, if all your devices are Apple, then I think using Apple solution is fine. Uh, one reason you may want to use a third-party one, so uh, I think, Dave, you use 1Password and I use LastPass, um, is if you need uh, multi-platform support. From what I can tell, Apple's solution is only on macOS and iOS. There is, and I think I did a little searching, um, I don't know if iCloud Keychain there's there's something called um, iCloud for Windows, which I guess installs uh, various pieces of iCloud uh, on a Windows machine, and you can access them. But I don't think Keychain is built into that, though I read somewhere, I'll have to look into this more, uh, more that uh, there's a Chrome extension that will let you access your Keychain. That's right. Yeah. Uh, 
a PC. And then, of course, if you want to run on Linux or Android, uh, uh, other solutions would be necessary because Mac doesn't run on those or uh, yeah, iCloud doesn't run on those. Yeah, I so your 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 answer is correct for for those use cases. Absolutely, using uh, you know a third party thing for cross platform and all that. I think there's a few other times though, a few other reasons why I use one password. The big one. Uh, was and still is ease of retrieval getting data out of apple's utility is there is no utility to do that right i mean on mac there's kind of sort of keychain access but that's really sort of weird you can go into safari preferences and passwords and extract things from there but that's sort of weird that you have to launch a web browser to do this like there's no good way and then on ios you got to go to settings and passwords and it's just weird and it's not organized very well. And it, it, the, the user interface of it is very, very basic. And so like it's, if I have to, I store my passwords, generally speaking, I store them in both. I know that sounds a little weird, but it works great um, in both iCloud keychain and, and one password. But if I have to restore one or retrieve one, it's one password a hundred percent of the time because they actually have a user interface that's built to do this. Not just like, Oh, we need a user interface to do this. So uh, sure here, there you go. Query the database on your own, you know, kind of thing. So that's, that's one. And then the other is sharing. Uh, if you have a family with whom you want to share passwords or, you know, a business team or whatever it is, you can in one password. Anyway, you can set up different vaults. And so I have my personal vault that's only accessible to me. And then I have a family shared vault that's accessible to, you know, the four of us in the family, I could, I, I don't, but I could have one that shares, you know, passwords with folks at the businesses. So th that's, that's the other reason. And then lastly, um, I can store more things in one password than just passwords. I store my software licenses. I store my driver's license, my family. We all store our driver's licenses and passports in there. Uh, we have pictures of our COVID vax cards in there, like things. And I, I, like I have used that the um, the driver's license when I was at town hall and I needed to do something to get like a dump permit, let's say it doesn't really matter. And I needed my license and it was in the car and I'm like, well, can I just show it to you on my phone? And they're like, yeah, sure. That's fine. And so I showed him my license and they're like, great, thanks. You know, and then gave me whatever I needed to to have. So those, and, and then you can just have secure notes in there. So it is a good repository for all kinds of information that you want at your fingertips, but also want at no one else's fingertips. So that's, those are the reasons. There you go. The answer is question. Hopefully it answers the question. Yeah. And LastPass does a lot of that too. So sure. yeah, I have my various documents stored in there. Um, it's kind of cool. What, it, what I've done um, as of late is, um, we have these uh, uh, state uh, lottery machine, uh, lottery ticket machines, and they scan your driver's license to verify your age. So you can then give it money and sure. um, hopefully. But um, I actually tried scanning the uh, the image from my phone and that worked, too. So, uh, yeah. And why shouldn't it? You know, it's the same barcode. Right. Right. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, but that said, like Apple's password manager is it works 
fantastic if the function is you want something to manage your passwords and sync them across all of your Apple devices. Like it, it, it does that job. It gets way more people using a password manager than would have ever before. So, you know, like it works. There's no issue with that. So there you go. Hopefully. Um, And one last thing. Yeah, man. Don't see it here. Yeah, I thought at one point last pass, I'm looking at the screen here. Um, it'll do like a security audit and say, you know, like you should fix these passwords. Yeah. Or, uh, and I think they both, you know, also generate um, nice random passwords for you. But I think Apple does that. Apple too. does all of those things. It will identify bad passwords and things like that, too. Yeah. Yeah. No, Apple's is it. It's. Like anything, Apple, it started out very, very simple, and now it's gotten to be slightly less simple, right? Which is fine. I mean, that's how they that's how they do things. So speaking of passwords, we were talking last week, John, you identified that uh, when you take a screenshot of a password, uh, it blanks it out. And listener Bruce noticed that uh he says, uh, if you use QuickTime Player on your Mac and plug your iOS device in directly to your Mac, you can display your iOS screen on your Mac screen. This comes in handy, he says, for consultants who want to be able to see a client's iOS device remotely. So there's a baked in quick tip for you. That's the extra sixth thing, by the way, uh, that if you need to see the screen of someone's iDevice remotely, have them plug it into their Mac and then. Uh, pull it up in QuickTime Player and then share their Mac screen with you. And now you can see their iDevices screen or vice versa. If you need to share, that's how you would do it. He says, uh, however, in a similar fashion, when the client goes to a screen on their iOS device that includes password information, that data is also blanked out by Apple. So it is not remotely viewable. Great for security, but a bummer for a consultant trying to troubleshoot. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's great. I like it. <laughs> that's a uh, nice catch. Thanks for sharing that. So, And thanks for sharing that other little quick tip. It's good. You want to take us to Jeff, John? I'm going to take us to Jeff. So Jeff says, I have a 2018 MacBook Pro running Catalina. When I delete a file, the finder doesn't update with more free space. I often find, I often find myself deleting a bunch of files and then Hours later, it reflects 200 to 300 gigs of freed up. Any secrets to get this to update faster or immediately like it used to? Um, and you're right. Um, this annoys me every now and then. And uh, here's what you can do about it. So, so APF is, APFS is just lazy about updating that number. But I think if press, um, you know, it will... Uh, if you ask for the amount of new free space, uh, as far as I know, it will happen, but it is annoying to not see the right number. Um, at one point, um, I, I tried this last night and it, it didn't work, um, but I thought at one point it did. And that in this utility, if, uh, for, if you run this utility from recovery, I thought that that at times, you know, would look at mostly like something with the snapshots and, and fiddle with those. And I think maybe expire them or whatever. Um, but what I found oddly enough, Dave yeah. camp assistant. <laughs> um, I've had it free up, you know, hundreds of gigs that I knew were available. I, 
I guess because the purpose of that utility is, you know, to find as much disk space as possible in order to, you know, let you set up boot camp. So, and when I, when I watch the progress, it, it seems to be getting rid of some caches that aren't immediately purged. So I think that's the secret sauce to that. Interesting. Yeah, that would be the trick, right? Is is doing an act an operation that that catches it up to what reality actually is. So, huh? Interesting. Boot camp assistant. Okay. All right. I'll take it. <laughs> that's um, that's interesting. Uh, cool. All right. Thanks, man. Nice. Are we we're good on that one? I don't have anything to add other than it's good. Cool. Um. Apple doesn't always do things right. Last episode, we were talking about uh, iCloud sync not syncing. And Domenico wrote in and says, uh, I, too, have experienced flakiness in iCloud drive syncing. In my case, with my iMac not syncing properly. Uh, here's what happened. And I created a workaround. He says, I needed I need to download files from the web on my iPhone occasionally, which then get processed on my iMac with Hazel. But I was finding that the file wasn't showing up on the iMac, so it wasn't being processed. That makes sense. He says, uh, so I created a keyboard maestro macro that runs every 90 minutes to kick iCloud in the pants by doing just that. So far, it's worked. So, yeah, he has a, um, a, 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 a keyboard maestro macro that he's going to post in our MacGeekab forums at MacGeekab.com slash forums. And uh, he called it kick iCloud sync in the pants. And it creates a folder on in inside his iCloud drive and that he has found is enough to kickstart the sync operation. And then it of course syncs with the cloud and realizes, Oh, there's stuff to bring down. That's weird. That shouldn't happen. Um, it's, it's built to just magically make it, you know, to sync all the time. That's sort of the idea behind real time syncing, but, um, but good on you for figuring out the workaround. Yeah. I like we don't hear about these problems with, Dropbox or Synology Drive Sync. Um, it's it. So I don't know what Apple's doing. I wonder if it's, I don't know. Syncing is hard is the reality. It may, I would be curious if like for someone like Domenico who's having this problem, if you were to turn off iCloud Drive completely, let it unravel itself like I described last week and then turn it back on, if that would fix this and alleviate this this lag symptom that you're seeing here. So, um, I mean, you just have to try, but that would be the, that would be the trick. So, all right. Um, yeah, there you go. You want to take us to Scott, John? I will take us to Scott. Um, here's a good one that I couldn't find just using Google foo. How do you stream from an iPhone to an iMac? Um, uh, basically, is there an AirPlay server for the iMac that I just can't find? And the answer is yes. <laughs> so my Google Foo is strong. Your Google Foo is strong, my friend. Yes, this is this is true. It's one of your superpowers. <laughs> well, you know, working in R&D, I mean, you know, part of it is just, you know, knowing how to how to phrase something. It is. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole troubleshooting mindset, right? Is okay. Let's figure out what someone else would have called this problem and see if they have a solution. So, yeah. Um, so anyways, uh, and I found this dandy article over at uh, Stack Exchange. Um, 
the title of the article, Can I Use a Mac Mini as an AirPlay Audio Receiver? And the answer is yes. And they mention in this article several products. Uh, one came up that I didn't, that I had not heard of before called Air Server, which appears to do both audio and video. Um, and then there's um, one that we've talked about before, uh, Airfoil, uh, from the good folks at Rogue Amoeba, or I think it's called Airfoil, Airfoil Satellite, right? Uh, no, Airfoil, oh, I got to get this right. Airfoil is the app that you would run on your Mac, uh, I believe. Yeah, you'd run, oh man, now I can't remember what how it works. There's. You might be right. It might be Airfoil Satellite. Airfoil Satellite is an audio receiver and remote control. You are correct. So it's Airfoil Satellite is the app that you run on uh, on your on your Mac to make it and a receiver for this. Airfoil is an app for your Mac to stream to multiple devices from anything, essentially. But uh, but Airfoil Satellite, you're right, is the app that sits on your Mac to do that. Correct. Absolutely right. We'll put links to all these in the show notes. Yeah. And you can, and, and that exists for iOS too, airfoil, but this is, that's audio only, right? So the, um, air server that you mentioned, that's, that's video as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Cool. Cool. And was there, was there more John? Uh, no, that, that, uh... okay. Cause I thought there was like, wasn't reflector. Another one of those that does that. It's like a screen mirror for, um, for airplay as well i think it is oh uh, yeah you're right okay yeah, they mentioned it here yeah air server and reflector right right there you go yeah 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 but um and there's also the the article listed but there's uh there's also four open source ones so really yeah Ooh, we like open source that's good let's see yeah casual share airstream i remember airstream right Okay. And then Cody, which is, I think, like what happened to the open source thing that became closed source Plex, right? It was Plex was sort of originated from the germs of XBMC or something. I I forget what the the history is, but XBMC is definitely in the sort of the, the early days of Plex's history. But then Cody became that. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll put these in there, too. Oh, nice. And then they're all in this uh, this Stack Exchange article that John uh, mentioned as well. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Cool. I love this stuff, John. It's what we do here. We have lots more to do as well. Uh, the next thing that I want to do, though, if uh, if you're ready, Mr. Braun, is I would love to talk about our sponsors for this episode. Um. Okay. <laughs> Is that is that is now an okay time? Are we finished answering questions? We're good. We're good. Here we go. All right. You know, we're all trying to eat better, right? More conscious about our health. And obviously what we put into our bodies is a big part of that. And uh, that has meant that some of those yummy cereals that maybe we used to like when we were kids are things that we really don't think about for breakfast as adults. Well, I am here to tell you that our sponsor, Magic Spoon, has all the amazing flavors that we love without all the bad stuff. Zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. Only 140 calories a serving. 
It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. And they've got this variety pack that they sent me uh, that has four flavors in it. A cocoa flavor, a fruity flavor, a frosted flavor, and then a peanut butter flavor. Those first three might remind you of things that you've had. That's what they taste like. It's exactly what you think. Like I've tasted them. The fruity one was the first one. I was like, oh my gosh, it's been so long, but this is the flavor I remember. Really good stuff. So you got to do it. Go to magicspoon.com slash MGG to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code MGG at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. I love that. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash MGG and use the code MGG to save $5 off and our thanks to Magic Spoon for sponsoring this episode. You know, we all like to get new uh, stuff. We're talking about, you know, mesh networks in the episode here and network storage. Well, before you can get new stuff, it's good to take care of the debt that you might be carrying from the old stuff that you got. And that's where our sponsor Upstart comes in because Upstart is the fast and easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan. And it's all done online. So whether it's paying off your credit cards, consolidating your high interest debt, or just funding personal expenses, over half a million people have used Upstart to get simple fixed monthly payments. Unlike other lenders, Upstart looks at more than just your credit score. This is the cool part here. They look at things like your income and employment history, and this means that they can offer smarter rates with trusted partners. And it's all done with through just a five-minute online rate check. You can see your rate up front uh, you know, for loans between $1,000 and $50,000. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash MGG. That's upstart.com slash MGG. Don't forget to use our URL. That way it lets them know that we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based upon your credit, your income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. So go to upstart.com slash MGG and our thanks to Upstart for sponsoring this episode. I know there's a lot of business owners out here listening and, uh, you know, a lot of you take credit cards for like your consulting businesses and things like that. Well, as we all know, tech shouldn't stifle innovation. Unfortunately, traditional payment systems are heavily layered, disconnected and perceived as a cost center to the business. Modern businesses need flexible payment systems that can help us adapt to change, grow, and more importantly, scale really quickly. And that's where Checkout.com comes into play. They put together this white paper uh, that, that shows all of these things that they learned from all this research that they've done about customer experience as part of the payment process. And they found that uh, 34% say they abandon a site permanently because of declined payments. And 56% of customers say they won't return to a site because they don't offer their preferred payment method. So you got to check this out, right? There's a reason why brands like Pizza Hut, TransferWise, Klarna, Revolut, and Samsung trust checkout.com. And you can go learn about it too. Go request a free no commitment demo at checkout.com slash MGG. That's checkout.com slash MGG for a free demo checkout.com slash mgg and our thanks to checkout.com for sponsoring this episode all right john let's um let's let's you got a tip actually about time machine to share don't you um well we got two tips here all right well let's do it 
So uh, let's see, Matt. <clears throat> well, he gives us a tip. Um, all right, Matt says he's a little behind. He was listening to episode 863. You mentioned creating an alias of the originals folder inside your photos package so that you can get to it from CCC. This is one of those uh, the dumb way works scenarios. <laughs> um, it works. Um, yeah. Yeah, it works. You know, I'm kind of disappointed, though, because I went into CCC and using their file browser, I was hoping it would be smart enough to let you look inside packages, but it's not. Oh, that's interesting. We should s- I'll send this to Mike. What a great tip to be able to have them do. That way you don't have to create the alias. You can just say, go into the package, actually go get this other folder. Right. Yeah, because uh, if... Uh, if you don't know it, um, a lot of things that appear as um, photos is not actually is not one big file. Your photo library is not one big file. It's actually a whole bunch of files inside of what they call a package. And actually, right, if you right click on it. Um, if you right click on something that's a package, you're going to see an option to open package, and then you can dig inside. So, um, yeah. Interesting. All right. But you said there was something else about time machine in there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and then he said, um, you also just mentioned using ARQ to back up your Synology instead of time machine. Uh, this is a great idea. That's actually what I do. I do have a 500 gigabyte SSD plugged into my Thunderbolt three dock that I use for time machine scheduled at night. Thank you, John, for time machine mechanic. Um, but I don't really rely on it. I've had too many time machine backups go bad on me. So I mostly just use it to have another source. If the worst thing happens, uh, it's nice and small. If a, a hurricane happens to want to run over the Island I live on. Oh. So my MBA and a pocket size external SSD are easy to grab and run. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, that's a that's a good one. I I also, Dave, uh, do not lie um, on time machine one hundred percent because it 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 screws up eventually. Yeah. Well, you can't rely on anything one hundred percent. That is the reality, right? If you're going to back things up, if it's good enough to back up once, back it up three times. So, um, a little tip here: what I do, Dave, is I actually back up the data of one of my Synologies to the other using their hyper backup. Uh, and that data includes my time machine backup. So if I want to go back in, um, so if I want to go back in time uh, to a prior one that worked, um, I have had success in restoring an older one and then it's happy. So you've done that. Yeah. Well, and if you, uh, if you convert your Synology volume to a, um, uh, to a BTFS, BTRFS, whatever it is, the, the Synology's thing that's similar to APFS, you can do snapshots. So you can snapshot your time machine backups and then just restore without having to actually restore anything and take the time that it takes to, to restore from that. So there you go. And I, and you said time or he said time machine mechanic, um, it, it, to set your time machine schedule, it's time machine editor that you want to use. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes for you folks so that you've got it. Okay. Uh, you got more about time machine, John? Oh yeah. Hold on. 
Man, I don't know what it is with Evernote here. Are you using Are you using regular Evernote or Evernote Classic? On this machine, I'm using the latest client, which bad, bad. You got to go back to Evernote Classic, man. Evernote, the new client that I don't know. It's based on Electron or something, or I I don't know. It's don't bueno. It's bad news. Got to use Evernote Classic, or we got to move to something else. Because well, anyways, this one I can I I got stored in my head here. Okay. So, uh, you want me to read the, was it a question from listener John or no? Okay. All right. Cause he, he did ask, he said uh, in episode 870, John, you mentioned mapping your time machine drive to an IP address. I'm having the same problem of the time machine drive, not mounting and I'm hoping this will resolve it. So how do I map a drive via its IP address? John in Nashville. Okay. And yeah, it's not very obvious on how to do that. You would think you could do that from within. Um, from the time machine preferences, but you can't. Well, you kind of, but you have to do something first, Dave. And this is the the thing that didn't drive me crazy, or I just stumbled across one day. Um, go to the finder, say connect to server, and then type in the URL, which will probably be something like smb colon slash slash. Sure of your time machine and then once you do that and you've mounted uh your time machine um directory then if you go into time machine and click on select drive you're going to see an additional entry where it lists the ip address instead of the local network name uh, yeah right yeah you've got to get it this is true not all the time, but especially when trying to connect time machine to network volumes that uh, are not on Apple devices. Sometimes you have to just make sure the drive is mounted and then time machine will see it. So there you go. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Good one, man. All right. Um Well, I'll, we'll, we'll jump around here. So we had a question this week about, drive speeds and it got me to thinking john is 16 gigs enough in the m1 max because i have two m1 max now right i've got an m1 mac in my office uh the mac mini and then i've got my m1 air so that many in my office that's my daily driver and prior to using that machine i had a you know an intel imac with 40 gigs of ram now, I don't do anything, uh, you know, overly ram hoggy on it. However, I certainly, you know, I leave it running for a week at a time before I reboot and I launch lots of uh, different apps and then quit those apps. And so I definitely would, you know, see it happily leverage most of the ram that I had in there. I could also tell you when ram was getting gobbed up in that particular machine. Just like I can tell you on this 2019 iMac that I have in front of me. What I have noticed with these Intel Macs is, uh, sorry, with these M1 Macs is I can't tell when the RAM is, when I'm using lots of swap case in point, it routinely, John, I will look at activity monitors, memory thing where it tells you how much swap we're using. And like I am routinely at five, six or seven gigs of swap used. Now on an Intel Mac, that was like a warning sign, but on the M1 Max, it's been fine. And I think it comes back to the speed at which the chip can see the SSD because it's all on that same 
uh, you know, it's a system on a chip, right? And so uh, this is my theory, but it seems to be holding up at least, you know, for a use case of two plural anecdote is not data, but you know, that's okay. Uh, we, um, you know, I get like 3000 megabytes per second reading and writing to that SSD there. And of course it's, the SSD is where it sends memory or data that's got to be paged out to swap. And at some point, the speed of that gets close enough to the speed of RAM that you just don't notice it anymore. And I, I wonder if that's part of the magic of this here. There may be more other different, completely separate optimizations that are part of the M1's virtual memory architecture. But I feel like that sort of physical reality is helpful. So I have noticed no issues with 16 gigs of RAM. Um even though I can see data that says I'm using, you know, many more gigabytes of swap than I would ever have ever been comfortable with prior. So I don't know. That's my, um, that's my thoughts on that. What do you think? Uh, what do you, what do you think, John? Uh, Mr. Braun? Um, I would. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking here and I see, um, yeah, I'm using 102 megabytes. Right. Uh, oh, swap and my memory pressure is low. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Memory pressure stays low for me on, on the M1 max, even when there's gobs and gobs and gobs of swap being used. Ari in the chat room at uh, live.macecap.com asks a prescient question. He says, is it still called Ram? And I don't know. I mean, maybe it is. <laughs> maybe it's not. That's, uh, you know, Ari says on the site, they specify it as unified memory. So maybe, huh? That's interesting. Um, yeah. Warren says silly Intel guys still worry about Ram. Yeah, I could. Uh, yeah, that, it's interesting. I, like we're in a different world here. Right? We, we said this when the M1s were announced and certainly when they were released that we kind of had to suspend our, our prejudices, if you will, about what you know, what it meant to be, to have the right configuration. It, it, we have to learn this anew. And so far, so far I'm learning, learning that 16, that 16 gigs. gigs. Whoa, whoa, John, John, you're echoing my sound back to me. I don't know what you just did, but uh, undo that. Undo that. Turned off. John? Okay. Yes. Yeah, you were echoing my. Off. I turned off echo cancellation. And then you echoed my sound back to me. So you have something interesting going on on your end, perhaps. Okay, I think you have your audio routed in a bad way, but we will pledge, we will trudge forward and we will sort this out later. But whatever you did, don't do that again. Um, so, yeah. Um, interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, I think you I think you've got something in audio hijack that's taking my audio and routing it to your microphone. Uh, probably that you're grabbing. Uh, well, I don't know. I couldn't tell you. We'll uh, we'll troubleshoot at the, uh, in the post show. So, um, you said that you had a photos issue. Is that right, John? Yeah. I'll just toss the question out. So when I was at the, uh, the parents for, uh, mother's day, I, um, <clears throat> uh, but during my visit before that I had upgraded, um, uh, the iMac to big Sur, And then all of a sudden my mom was like, my pictures don't work anymore. And so 
I figured out how to get it to work again, but it's stupid and I want to know why. Okay. Uh, so it's a Lumix camera and it has a USB cable. Um, the time and date were set properly. Um, and what used to happen is that you would plug the camera into the machine and then photos would launch and then it would show you any new photos on the camera. Well, it doesn't do this anymore. So I don't know if Big Sur broke something, but here's what worked. I'm like, I don't even know why I thought of this. Uh, just some, something with the way I try to solve problems. I'm like, let's take the SD card SD card out and plug it into the back because the uh, the iMac, this iMac has a SD card slot. Then I saw the new pictures. Oh, interesting. Huh. So it works okay plugging the card into the SD card slot, but not USB to the camera. Is that, is that yes. right? Whoa. Yeah. It has a USB cable that, yeah. And then plugs into some stupid proprietary connector. Yeah, of course on the camera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Huh. So I'm wondering if anybody's ever run into that. Well, it, it. it could be the, um, I'm trying to think this through it. It, it could be that whatever, driver previously existed to let the camera mount as a drive doesn't anymore. Like when you put that, when you yeah. plug that cable in, what does it show up? It, well, I mean, I have many questions. Does it show up in the finder? And if not, does it show up in system profiler under USB? Like, does it see that there's a device there? And if so, yeah. what does it think it is? So, yeah. Yeah, my guess is that it's obviously it's not the the memory card or even the format of the memory card. That's fine. It is the camera's ability to act as a card reader mm -hmm. is changed. So there might be a driver you need to install on Big Sur if it actually exists, which yeah. may or may not. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I mean, it shows up in photos as uh, no underscore name, which is the name, uh, the default name when this camera formats the memory card. But that's only when you plug the memory card in directly, right? No. Oh. No, in both cases, it, it shows up under devices. In photos, there's a devices category. And when you plug in a memory card or huh. a camera, uh, it shows up under there. So, Huh, but you can't see the pictures when it's coming from the camera. It doesn't detect the new pictures Oh, I plug in the camera. It's weird. Oh, that is weird. Huh? Yeah. Maybe reformat the memory card. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. The fixer broke something because I'm like, look, my intent was not to break stuff that worked. It was just to get you up to the latest technology. Mm -hmm. Well, I wonder. So if it's not seeing new pictures, I wonder if there's some kind of setting that photos is keeping saying, okay, I know what the date stamp is or something that says look, anything before this, you know, event, let's call it is not new and we shouldn't pull them in. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, whatever that flag is got confused with the update to the new version of photos. So yeah, reformatting the card might actually be the answer here. Yeah. There you go. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Cool. Want to take us to Bob? Um, yes. So, uh, Bob makes an observation. Uh, episode 870, John had a great find how to get the serial number and air tag. 
Uh, FYI, I have multiple, and the serial numbers are different, but I do have the same firmware as you. The different serial number is good because I was thinking about giving one to my kid who doesn't live with me, so I think this will work. Um, okay, yes, and I confirmed it too. So um, so I ordered some uh, holders. So I, I only activated one, and I put it in my car, and, um, you know, it, it works as advertised. Uh, I think I mentioned Um you know, about a hundred feet, it can detect it. And then when you get within like 20 feet, it gets to, uh, it gets directional using that ultra wide band or something like that. Um, but no, I found that. Yeah. And then I, so now I have one of my keychain because I got the keychains, those, you know, ones that you, you found, um, yeah. Dave and actually shipped from China. Yeah. I got a tracking number and I was like, whose tracking number is this, uh, China post. So, um, but yes, so so the serial number is different. I confirmed that. Cool. All right. There you um, go. Cool. Another place as well is if you screw the top off and lift the battery in teeny tiny little characters, the serial number is also there. Though you probably have to use the magnifier app to see it because it's really small. Uh, interesting. My- yeah. And there's some other model number and, and FCC something or other in there. So. Yeah. No. Cool. Cool. Speaking of FCC numbers, we got a note from listener Stephen for anyone buying a cable modem. Evidently, there is a problem with cable modems that have the Intel Puma 6 chip. He says, um, my past week has been character building. I unfortunately seem to have been caught up in what I will call Chipgate. My neighborhood seems to use this popular ISP provider, which... uh, all have varying degrees of connectivity issues. Manifestations have been no VoIP service, dropped or frozen Zoom calls, laggy website loads, etc. My ISP uses only the uh, affected cable modems and insists the problems don't involve their equipment, which um, is, which I say, I have oceanfront property in Arizona for sale, right? Yes. Uh, he says, after doing some digging, I came across a class action lawsuit that you might find of interest so that others can avoid getting caught. Uh, there is a link that he sent to us about this Puma six cable modem defective chipset. And we'll put a link in the, in the show notes so that you can see the list of modems that have this chipset in them. And if you're having a problem, uh, you know, take a look at the symptoms that are associated uh, with this and that might get you the answer there. So thank you, Stephen. I appreciate that, uh, that heads up. So we've got that list in the show notes and we will, We'll move it on. Uh, Speaking of network connectivity that doesn't really come together, listener Paul brings up an interesting one. He says, um, my new uh, MacBook Air works fine in New Jersey. I brought it to Massachusetts on a two-week visit and find that it says that it's on Wi-Fi at several different locations around the island, but I cannot connect to any site and cannot get it to send email. I spent some time with AppleCare today to no avail. I recycled my own router and modem and used other connections, including public libraries and a friend's house. I even reinstalled Big Sur. Still nothing. Do you have any ideas? So, yeah. So, you know, distilling this down, Wi-Fi connects in all places, passes data in only one. Right. So let's let's operate under that principle here. The first thing that I would look at is to see if you have a DNS problem, because if you have manually entered your home router's DNS address, that's what your Mac will be trying to use. Even when you're not at home, 
So you go into system preferences, network, Wi-Fi, click the advanced dot, dot, dot button and look at the DNS tab. If there is anything there that isn't grayed out, grayed out means it gets it automatically from whatever Wi-Fi network you're connecting to. Not grayed out means it is hard coded in there. If it's not grayed out, then you have hard coded it. Uh, and that's the problem. Thankfully, if that's it, easy solution, click it, highlight it, hit the minus button at the bottom of the screen and it will erase that and you are good to go. So hopefully that's what it is because it really is, uh, you know, what you're describing there sounds like a DNS issue. It's just not, uh, able to do those lookups. So, so what do you think? Any thoughts on that, John? Uh, yeah, I'm kind of with you on that. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's do some cool stuff found, shall we? Let's see. We have more questions. We might come back to the questions, but uh, but it's uh, I want to make sure we get to cool stuff found. I found one this morning, John. Uh, Evgeny Chirpak, who Chirpak, sorry, who uh, makes remote for um, for uh, the like for the iMac to control your your computer uh, from from remote. Uh, also, he makes utilities. Maybe the best way to say it is he makes utilities that make your life easier, simple little utilities. And his newest one is called recent menu. And what it does is it puts in your menu bar, a list of all of the, the, you know, menu items that you have chosen recently and their keyboard shortcuts are next to them. So this provides two services. Number one, you can look at what you're using and see if there's a keyboard shortcut for it, and then perhaps try and get that keyboard shortcut into your workflow, making things more efficient for you. The other thing you can do is you can actually trigger these menu items right from this menu. So if you've got stuff that you're like, I just used it, it's buried three levels deep, I forget where it was, don't worry about it. If you just used it, go up and choose it from recent menu. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. While I saw this on Twitter, I saw him tag another uh, account Now, it is a mostly defunct account in that it hasn't had a post in about 18 months. However, it's called MenuMac. So it's at MenuMac on Twitter. And it is a good it, historical, but not entirely out of date, resource of a list. They used to post all kinds of menu bar utilities that you might find useful on your Mac. And as I read through it. I used probably I, I am actively using probably 80 percent of these. So it was a good list, even though it's it seems to be static at this point. But um, but it's, you know, still current enough that I figured it worthy of cool stuff. found. So those are those are two of my contributions this week, John. You got anything? Uh, yep. Let me. Let me share. Do you want me to share Jeremy's with you somehow here? No, no, we're good. Okay, you got it. Good. Uh, while searching for something entirely different, I ran across this cool wireless charger for anyone that wants to create their own hidden charge spot. Um, that's pretty much what, that's, what this is. Uh, it's from Lee Valley, and it's called Wireless Charger. Okay. Um, and you look at it, and, you know, it's pretty straightforward. It, uh, it, it, it they they list the features. I guess they do power management and, you know, they won't blow up your phone. You know, nice things to have in a cheat charger. <laughs> um, and it has a, adhesive strips on it um, and also holes. So you could, you could either attach it, you know, easy to attach um, 
or you could, you know, drill it into the bottom of your table or whatever um, mm. material um, you're using. Interesting. That's pretty cool. Okay. Right. So you you drill a little hole, right? I would assume, or you don't even have well, it to. Like, it looks like um, you just adhere it to the bottom of the, the surface that you want to be the hot spot. And as long as it's not too thick, you should be okay. Interesting. I didn't realize that a hotspot would work like this through like a wooden, like a half inch desk, but it sure looks like, in fact, that's exactly the, the example they have. It says it can do non-metallic surfaces up to one inch thick. Wow. Huh. That's pretty good, man. Huh. I like it. Yeah, we received a, a similar tip from someone. I guess they had one that they 3D printed, but that's a bit more work because you got to drill a hole and stuff like that. So, uh, so yeah, looks uh, interesting. A uh, nice way to quickly uh, get your wireless charging. Yeah, I like it. Well, that's pretty good, man. All right. Um, yeah. Okay. I have finally had the opportunity to check out Plume's new entry to the Wi-Fi 6 market. They just came out with their Wi-Fi 6 SuperPods, and uh, and I've got them running here at home. These, you know, the, the, the best thing I can say about them is they work exactly like I expected they would work. So Plume, as far as roaming, like devices roaming between hot, you know, uh, access points, we'll call them, at home, Plume is the absolute best that I've experienced in the house. Um, Eero is pretty close. Like Eero and Plume deserve their top two marks on, on my list. Uh, Very much so. But on this particular thing, Plume is better. It's amazing how fast it knows to sort of nudge my device to the next, you know, the, the closest hotspot. I don't know what sort of magic they're doing, but they know how to do it with every device and they make the devices do it very, very well. So because of that, you always are getting like super fast speeds because you're always connected to the best hotspot that the mesh network thinks you should be connected to. And this is a trick because it's not up to the mesh, which hotspot your device connects to. It's up to your device. The mesh can hint to your device and it can give those hints subtly or strongly, but, um, but it's up to your device to make the decision to switch. So Plume does this amazingly well and, uh, and their Wi-Fi six performance is, is fantastic. So, uh, you know, and I'm, I mean, I'm getting, I'm getting the speeds that I would expect to get uh, with, you know, with Wi-Fi six, you, you know, normally it's about, you know, four to 500 megabytes per second with my iPhone at what I would call normal distances, if I am in a perfect scenario, I will regularly get seven to 800 megabits per second, um, you know, with, with Wi-Fi six, but, um, but yeah, it, it's, they, and it, it just, the, the way the plume setup works, they, they make it really, really simple, which is their job. I mean, it's, it's how it should be. Uh, and they do, a, they do a fantastic job with it. So um, yeah, they, they, you know, they, the only drawback and it depends again depends on how you do things but you are buying a membership for a year when you buy your plume super pods and then you might want to pay to extend that membership it's generally a hundred bucks a year uh and that gets you your software updates and a lot of sort of the cloud-based um magic if you will 
that that Plume does. So you definitely want the the membership. And it looks like at the moment on their site, they're offering essentially the membership free for the first year they in that they have a limited offer save $99 on hardware uh so there you go your 99 bucks comes off the hardware price you pay for the one year membership and uh and it you know kind of nets out there so um yeah very very impressed with uh with plume i always have been impressed and i'm super stoked that they made the jump into the the wi-fi 6 market so that's a little more than a cool stuff found but uh but you know that's where we go. You got any, uh, any thoughts on the matter there, John? No, I'm still on the, uh, still on the Eero. And Eero does great with it too. They're, they're Wi-Fi six and Wi-Fi five. I mean, Eero, yeah, they've been, they've been doing really well. So cool. Um, we do have time. If that's the end of our cool stuff found, then we do have time to uh, do some more questions. You want to take us to Scott, my friend? Uh Oh, why, why? Uh Oh, Everything okay? Are we still having Evernote issues? Uh, yeah, hold on. Okay. I didn't have it up in front of me. All right. Yeah, there we go. Uh, everything's everything's all downloaded. Um, hi, Dave and John. I'm running Big Sur on my 16 gigabyte Mac Mini with an M1. Yay. I've never installed Google Chrome or Google Drive or any other Google product on my Mac, to my knowledge. However, this morning when I turned on my Mac, I got two alerts. From little snitch that concerned me, Cloud D tried to connect to GoogleAPIs.com and Identity Services D tried to connect to 17.242.177.17. Um, I denied both connections. I did a lookup of uh, the IP address, which seems to be based in Chicago and belongs to Apple. So now I'm tempted to allow this connection going forward. But why would Cloud D, which I presume is the iCloud process, be connecting to Google? Um, I've had my Mac mini running a month or two, and this is the first time I've seen these alerts. So it seemed odd that, uh, they had just come in together straight out of the blue after my Mac had been running for weeks. Any thoughts? Um, yeah, I found, uh, uh, Apple, uh, support article, uh, which had the same theme, uh, NSURL session D and cloud D sending gigabytes to GCS US dash Google Um, to sum up what, what the article said, Dave, I think yeah. the speculation is that iCloud is using, uh, probably some open source stuff from Google. Could be. I, I mean, they use AWS as a CDN or have in the past. I know, obviously, they've, they've built their own data centers, too. So possible that they're using something of Google's? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, weren't they, for a time, weren't they using Google's security database as part, like their malware database as part of their malware checking? And they may still be doing that? I think Safari... <clears throat> I'm pretty sure, yeah, that that service is in Safari to identify malicious sites. And I think, yeah, I think Google, um, I think they're using a Google product to to do that. Makes sense. Makes sense. So the thing is, uh, yeah, and, and also just any, you know, Apple or whoever uh, sometimes introduce redundancy in their um, environment. Because if any one connection goes down or a CDN goes down, which they have in the past, 
and you hear about it usually on Twitter. <laughs> right. Um, but some of these things go down. So it's, uh, you know, so it's good for an operating system or, or, you know, a server-based app to have multiple connections. Um, right. Yeah. 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 For sure. For sure. Yeah. 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 That's what I got. That's what we got. All right. Um, let's see where we are. Yeah. We still got time for a couple others. Hey, okay. So two tips that, that jumped out at me, John, the first one from listener, Jason, who uh, he says it happened. I got caught. I've been having some issues with contact syncing between devices and finally had time to troubleshoot and fix it. The problem is that it appeared contacts aren't syncing through iCloud from my phone to my other devices. So step one, I checked iCloud.com to see if they were there. They were not. So the issue is clearly my phone. I tried the turn it on, turn it off method for iCloud and contacts. No luck. So then I started digging into contacts. It turns out in the contacts app on iOS, if you click the groups in the top left, you can selectively turn groups of contacts on and off. This is a bit confusing because groups in macOS contacts are the groups that you build on iOS. Groups really seem to mean accounts and groups that you build as you can toggle groups within accounts or accounts themselves. By turning them on and off and looking for contacts that weren't syncing, I realized that my non-syncing contacts were in my Gmail account. Yeah. He says, so after an export and then an import, they were in iCloud. Problem appears to be fixed. But how did they end up in that account? I never intended to put them there. Faster and funnier, the answer. Contacts has a default account that it adds all new contacts to. How do you set that, you ask? On the iOS device, go to Settings. Contacts default account contacts are automatically added in the default account and you cannot change this at the moment that you're creating a contact, uh, at least not when using the built in contacts app. After some sync time, I now have all my contacts synced in any single account. So the short version is you can see and toggle specific groups from iOS contacts and on iOS contacts, new contacts default to the default account in settings contacts default account and you can't change that that i had almost exactly the same problem uh probably for years jason and finally dealt with it uh about a uh, i don't know two weeks ago i i have not fared as well as you jason there are some contacts that for me were lost in the process and i don't know why i exported all, all of my google contacts and then I shut off Google contact syncing and I imported them into iCloud. Um, but it, it somehow in there, there are contacts that were not in Google that were in iCloud. But when I turned it off, they weren't like that doesn't make any sense to me because I didn't delete anything. I simply stopped syncing with Google and then imported everything that I exported from Google. And I even checked spot checked the contacts that I found were missing. Uh, I checked to see if they were syncing to Google, you know, like, I mean, not syncing, but still in Google. Like I didn't delete anything in Google, not there. So some of them were, but not all of them. So I'm not sure what happened, but I, I have noticed on my, now that I'm saying this out loud, John, I have noticed for years that whenever I make a change to contacts, my CPUs on my Mac, and it doesn't matter whether it's a, you know, tiny little Mac with a two core CPU or a Mac with an eight core CPU with hyper threading on top of it. Uh, the CPUs all peg for, I don't know, 10 to 30 seconds. 
do you know with a dress book sync or calendar agents or you know one of those myriad things that tells me it so i think there has been a problem with my contacts for quite some time uh, i did back up my contacts uh you know i i, I did a uh backup from within the contacts app before I did any of this. So I do have those contacts. I can go and extract them if I need to, but, um, but it's not optimal. Uh, I'm glad to it, it now when I edit contacts though, I don't see the CPU spike I'm noticing. So um, maybe I had a bigger issue, but yeah, that default contacts thing, it, it's a pain in the neck because you don't know it. Like if you don't go and look at what it's, set to you you don't know what it's set to when you're creating a contact you have no visual indication as to where it's going to store that and that's kind of crazy so thank you for sharing this jason i bet you and i are not alone do you sync contacts to multiple places john uh i think icloud is the only place that's the only one okay yeah i uh at one point, I'm I'm still going through my contacts list because I still have a bunch that were a result of past integrations that they no longer have in. Uh, okay, in uh, Mac OS, I think at one point you could link to Facebook, you could link to LinkedIn, uh, and get the contact info that way. But then they stopped. Um, or maybe I just I don't know what I, I think I just decided at one point, yeah, I want to have all my contacts in one place. So sure. but there's leftovers (laughs) right yeah there's yeah orphans in my case so yeah yeah and doing a merge uh i did a merge i finally you know bit the bullet and did a merge and had to run it a few times and uh it's better yeah better (laughs) yeah all right well that's gonna do it for us today i'm going to wait to bring in the music because i know you've got some audio loop happening john and if i bring in the music now you won't be able to talk so um so i will uh here i'll play the music briefly there's the band so now we know it's the outro and now i'm going to bring the band out a little bit um but uh john do you have uh do you have anyone either to thank now that we're in the outro of the show or uh, perhaps a place to share to have people find us. Um, one place you can find us is on Twitter. He is Dave Hamilton. I am John F. Braun. Mac Geekab is Mac Geekab. Mac Observer is another cool place to go. And of course, Pilot Pete, who's piloting, I guess. We're going to get him back. I've, I had a conversation with him. Uh, so I think the, the, the time may have been able to come where we can, we can have pilot Pete here in the studio. So, uh, so yeah, we, we might be able to get pilot Pete back folks. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for all of your reviews on Apple podcasts. Uh, we have a link for that in the show notes, but you can just go to MacGeekab.com slash reviews and, uh, and you can get, uh, you can leave us a review there. We would love to have you do that. Of course, thanks to our sponsors for this episode. Uh, the three that we mentioned, magicspoon.com slash MGG, upstart.com slash MGG and checkout.com slash MGG. Make sure to check out all of them. We appreciate it and they appreciate it too. Um, our thanks to Cashfly for providing all the bandwidth to get the show from us to you. And uh, yeah, that's what we got. Check out MacGeekup.com slash sponsors to learn about our other sponsors. Smile, Otherworld Computing, Barebones at Barebones.com, Eero.com slash MGG, Lino.com slash MGG. 
All right, John, I got us into this mess. Will you uh, will you get us out? I'm going to get us out and suggest to everybody something uh, you should always do uh, for every aspect of your life. And that is don't get caught.